Welcome to the podcast It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. We are here with a very special episode this week. It's uh, I, I'm actually joined by two two guests, one very familiar, Trainer Road and Cannondale's Amber Pierce. What's up, Amber? Hey, everybody. And then we are also joined by, in this case, Elliot Jackson. So Giant Factory Off-Road Racing, uh, downhill pro, pro downhill racer, I should say. He's raced for Team USA on that front at World Cup levels and even at the World Championship level. And he also uh, is with the man behind Grow Cycling Foundation, of course, with the rest of his team there. How you doing, Elliot? I'm doing great. I'm uh, super excited to be here. Thanks, man. It's kind of funny. So we have to, this is like a reconnecting of things. We were actually never connected, but it's kind of funny just the same. So when I got into mountain biking years later and I saw that there was a guy named Elliot Jackson racing and I was like, that's the same guy I raced in motocross that completely waxed me for years. People probably don't know, but you used to race motocross at a very high level for years before you became a pro downhill racer, correct? Yeah, totally. Um, and it's so funny, like we were kind of chatting about it before the podcast started, where it's like a blast from the past thinking about um, all of these national level races. There's, you know, the World Mini and Las, Las Vegas. And um, yeah, it's it's so funny to relive those moments and think back about all the training and all the hot days, all the little towns and, and stuff like that. Yeah. All the time on the road going to races totally. and yeah. Yeah. Fun sport. That's where my roots are. That's where your roots are. And we actually are going to talk a lot about downhill racing today, but from a very objective perspective, as far as what can we learn from the mentality and then also the technicality of a downhill racer? Uh, I figured this is a good, a conversation for us to have Amber since Nate isn't here and Chad isn't here. It's a leg up for you because <laughs> Elliot, I don't think you know this, but Amber and, uh, and Brandon are COO here at trainer road. They have a team for Cape Epic next year. And then Nate, our CEO is going to be teaming up with a professional mountain biker, a female professional mountain biker. And then we also have, uh, our head coach, Chad, and one of our product managers, Pete. So we have these three teams that are facing off at Cape Epic <laughs> and it's like a race to see who can get better extreme competitiveness. So, yeah, that's uh Cape Epic. Um, good. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was a hard pass on that one too. So, um, but Elliot, I don't know if you know, but Amber is a pro, she's a pro road racer. I should say at this point, she's a retired pro racer, yeah. but she had a, a long career racing on the world tour level, uh, with, with different teams in Europe and, and of course all throughout the U S too. So, so, uh, this is going to be a really cool thing and a leg up for you, Amber, cause you get I'm to I'm super excited to pick your brain, Elliot. So I I am like full on roadie. I am such a noob on the mountain bike. Uh, So stage racing is nothing new to me, but everything else about it, the, the technicality, all of it. So I'm, I cannot wait for this conversation. I'm super excited. (laughs) I feel like I feel the same about, about you guys. because It's like, uh, there's, I live in, um, in Thousand Oaks in California, Southern California. And there's like, world-class road riding like right outside my door um and when i was racing mountain bikes i would ride road like a ton and uh i actually went through this phase thinking back about it i went through this phase where i was like i'm gonna pin it down all the hills because like if i'm not scared to go down a hill fast on a road bike then like i won't be scared on a mountain bike (laughs) and i remember i was like in new zealand um they have some like super steep climbs and stuff there and i was coming down i was like pushing it and i like 
overshot a turn and like was sliding, like went into the barrier, like didn't crash or whatever. And I was like, okay, okay. Um, keep going. Yeah. yeah keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but I just like, I was never able to like it, the, the techniques and like a lot of the higher level concepts, um, I think are really similar. Um, uh, but still like going fast on a road bike is so scary. It's so different. <laughs> it's so different. And I mean, for me, it's the reverse, like on the mountain bike. Cause the speed on a mountain, I'm so, so comfortable on a road bike. Like that, that's good. But I know that there's a lot of differences and I, I can't just like <laughs> map those skills straight onto the mountain bike and expect right. to fly. Um, but thousand Oaks is beautiful. That's actually where I used to go out and train every winter. So I, I, I love that area. I have some really good friends out there. Um, a couple host families that I, I consider like my extended family now. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, good road riding and good mountain biking. I wish I could get out there right now for training. It's crazy. Nice. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really nice. It's been a bit hot, but just complain there. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot, it's too I want to get, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Too sunny, too comfortable outside. Uh, the ocean views are too good right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, so Elliot, I, I want to get into something here, just like a basic question here. Um, be, so we talked about speed and I think that that's an interesting point with motocross, your average speed is, is really high in most cases, unless you're racing something like arena cross or supercross that's in a tight confine, like otherwise you are at really high speed. So did that, did you find yourself when you transitioned into, into mountain biking away from motocross, did you find that that familiarity with a high level of speed was advantageous to you at all in mountain biking? Yeah. You know, I feel like this is, it's kind of an interesting one because I feel like speed is kind of like a relative thing to whatever like vehicle you're in. Like when you're in a car, 70 miles an hour doesn't really feel fast. But if you were like on a motorcycle, it would feel really fast. And then if you're on a bike, it would feel insane. <laughs> so like, I felt like when I transitioned from, um, motocross and mountain bikes, I felt like the biggest thing. And one of like the core things for me was that I knew what it felt like to really know what the bike was going to do. And I knew like what kind of confidence that could give you. I think in motocross, we kind of like ride maybe a lot more than like a professional mountain biker would, you know, riding like five days a week or whatever. Um, and I've always thought that that was, you know, the most important thing where if I could know exactly like what my bike was going to do in every situation, then it gives you this confidence that, um, you know, when you see a rock or something, you're like, cool. Like if I pull up and I hit it with my back wheel, like it'll do this, it'll come up this much, it'll kick out this way. Um, and I felt like that was like a really key learning for me. Is how much of that comes down to bike setup in the motocross world. It's, mm -hmm. It's definitely something that's a focal point for a rider. You kind of get to a point where skills can get you so far, but if you're not good at testing your equipment, and what I mean by that is, is testing something and understanding it's, it's change or improvement or detriment to the handling of the motorcycle. And then being able to like process all of that and understand which direction you need to go with that equipment. It, it, did that come into play with mountain biking? And do you find that you're better at that? I think. I probably thought about it a little bit more, um, at a higher level. I think now people are kind of 
testing and thinking about their bike a lot more than they were maybe when I first started racing. Um, but I think on, you know, it's really interesting because like on a motorcycle, like motocross, like the bike makes a, a much bigger difference than it would on a mountain bike. Um, and I think that there is, I've noticed that like in, in the mountain bike space and bike space in general, like people really care about their bikes. Like <laughs> I, um, like you hear people being like, yeah, like the back end was too flexy on this. And I'm kind of like, how do you know? <laughs> Get out of my head. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> I'm like, how do you know that's like, like, that's not the spoke tension or like, the flimsiness of the of the rim or the tire pressure that you were running. So I think it's um, to me. I feel like sometimes people have it backwards, where you first um, think about the bike and then you think about the riding. Where there's actually two different philosophies. Um, where you can either say, "I want to get the bike set up perfectly for every single type of terrain." So that would be, you know, I would go to a World Cup. And this was kind of my thing where like you go to a world cup and you say, I want the bike to perform the best it possibly can on this terrain. And then the other philosophy is saying, um, I want to know exactly what the bike is going to do. So like a lot of people like you, like Bernard Kerr, um, Luca Shaw was kind of like this in the downhill space where they would get a good setup that they were comfortable on and then just run it all year because they knew their bike so well um, that even if it didn't perform, like even if it kicked maybe an inch higher on a rock or like slid a little bit more, they knew exactly how much it was going to slide. Um, and I think that that is kind of a, is a good approach for people, especially like if you're not used to it, because you can kind of just go down this rabbit hole. Um, and it's more important, like for you to be comfortable on the bike. So it's kind of like, okay, let me think about it a little bit. I'm going to get my bike set up, but then like, I'm just going to ride it for like a year. <laughs> yeah. I, I, the one thing that it would be interesting to pick your brain on with this too, because, and, and I definitely fall into the approach of, I try to get my bike ideal for the different terrain. Uh, and then, you know, I there's kind of like plasticity with the bike or the, or the, the rider kind of within that, that mindset, but looking at, at going into mountain biking, what was the hardest part about mountain biking coming from a motocross background? Like, what did you yeah. find? Like, gosh, I'm really not good at this. <laughs> so I feel like you're probably going to relate to this in motocross, the way that you go fast, um, and, until you like at the super, super, super highest level, it's, it gets more similar, but like at the level I was at, the way that you would go fast is, um, you would like, break as late as possible. Um, and, and it was fine cause you had a motor and like you needed to keep your corner speed up, but like the place that you made up a lot of your time was like breaking really late. And in mountain biking, it's the complete opposite. And like throughout my whole career, like I consciously had to say like, okay, tone it back. <laughs> you <have> to, <laughs> wherever you think you're going to break it, like break maybe 10 feet further back. And when, you know, you would go to a world cup and you want to start picking it up, my tendency was to say, okay, break later, break later. And on a mountain bike, it's about 
And I think on, on bikes in general, it's about letting off the brakes earlier. So keeping your same braking point that you had when you're first cruising, but then just letting off the brakes, um, kind of before you get to that turn where if you're letting off the brakes, like 10 feet from the apex or something like that, um, try to let off the brakes like 20 feet before the apex rather than moving that braking point forward. And that was like just a nightmare. (laughs) It's so ingrained in my thing. Whereas they would just would want to say break later, break later. Like, (laughs) yeah. And that stalls all of your momentum in a turn, right? When you force all of that braking so late, you miss out on the opportunity to roll through with more control and then also your exit speed, which is, I mean, Hey, that's the goal, right? Like to have a higher speed coming out of every turn. It's tough to do that when you're jamming on your brakes all at the last second, I faced the same problem. And it's funny because in talking to Nate and everybody else, it's, it's probably the opposite of what a lot of people have because a lot of people, they probably break too soon. Right. Uh, but man, I, I screw up every time it's go time in my head. I blow right. every turn. That's the first thing to go out the window. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's because I'm like breaking at like the very apex of the turn. Like I'm pinned all the way into it and it's a trap. It's, it's an easy trap to fall into for sure. It's, it's so, it's so true. Like, and I feel like, um, you know, even from kind of like a more logical perspective, um, when you break later, you are carrying a higher speed for, let's say, an extra two seconds. Um, but when you think about exit speed, like you were saying, you're carrying, and, you, and the next straight is 15 seconds, you're carrying that higher level of speed um, for 15 seconds. So you're like always optimizing for that, for the highest average speed on whatever you're doing. And breaking that one second later is, is going to give you one second of higher speed and 15 seconds of slower speed. I feel like too, Amber, like you guys, it's even almost more important to do that because, um, like those straights are longer and you like, don't have to use as much energy. Yes. Yeah. It's all about carrying your momentum through the corner on the road and it's, it's about carrying your momentum through the corner, but also if we were all, I'll be honest, there have been moments where I've like braked a little bit late just to get the edge on somebody. So I have my handlebars <laughs> in front before we go through the corner, like, definitely happened before, but in general, like if you're, go- if you're in a Peloton, for example, like you don't want to be hitting the brakes really hard and making a sudden deceleration because not only is that going to put everybody around you at risk, but also it's you're just making life harder for yourself because you're going to have to reaccelerate and just, and it's, it's those, those kind of punchy accelerations that really kill your legs. Whereas if you're just modulating your speed, feathering the brakes, or to your point, breaking a little bit less, but a little bit earlier, um, carry moment, more momentum for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Amber, did you notice, uh, uh, the bike limits that even more too, I would assume like, like Elliot, when you're talking about a downhill bike, you have huge meaty tires, a lot of suspension, super powerful brakes, uh, everything else. And then Amber, when you're talking about like a TT bike, I'm thinking like the opposite side of things. So they, they kind of just don't have brakes. They have things that make noise <laughs> on the rim and that's like, it. <laughs> is, is that yeah, if something you need your that... brakes? You're not doing it right. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Did not mean that. No one take that literally. <laughs> that had to have been super tough on a TT bike, right? Like finding oh, yeah. braking points. Did they vary for you? Oh yeah. Big time. And, and that was in the TT bikes they usually have aero brake setups and it's wonky and it, it's really hard to adjust the brakes on a TT bike. So, um, and you, 
the last thing you want in a TT is for the brakes to be rubbing. So usually you're setting up so that if there's a margin of error, you're making it so that like you have less braking power. So you're less <laughs> likely to have a rubbing brake. Um, yeah, it's, I'll say it's unner unnerving. <laughs> it's, <laughs> there's not for a lot sure. of confidence in your stopping power on those things. <laughs> Elliot, when we talk about like mountain biking in particular, and, and at this point we've been, you know, somewhat self-deprecating for all of us, but I want you to put your expert hat on in this case, uh, because you're, you're genuinely an expert here. What do you see an, like a beginner mountain biker do that like you pick up on like a common mistake that you see, and you've had tons of experience riding with athletes and, and, uh, some that you may not even call athletes, but just mountain bikers in general. Right. So what are things that they do that you pick up on and you wish that you could just like fix for them? And, and if they could change that mountain biking would be a better experience. Mm. I think, um, one of the things I notice um, really early on is kind of a body position thing where, um, the, and again, this is like, opposite to a, a motorcycle. And I, I think probably like more on the road as well, but like your knees kind of need to come out of it. And it's really about letting the bike do whatever it wants. Um, and also kind of having that boxy position kind of elbows up because you on a mountain bike, you're really trying to always have your weight perpendicular to the ground. Um, and so that means like around a flat turn, you're leaning your bike instead of leaning your body and, and making sure that you can kind of get that separation from your body and bike. Uh, and it's, I think it's tempting when you are first learning to want to stay close to the bike. Like it's kind of like a safe place and, <laughs> uh, but it's also opposite. We always used to talk about it at the downhill races where there would be this wet Rudy section and you would want to ride safe. You kind of, you know, ball up a bit, but then it would just make you crash because you're riding safe. And if you were just to loosen up a bit, um, then you're able to handle that stuff better. You're ready for the bike to kick out this way. Or, um, you know, if it kicks up in the back or something like that, then you're more prepared and can kind of ease more easily, uh, react to it. So that's that bike body separation, right? That like you want to maintain because mm -hmm. your bike is, especially when you come from road, like, like Amber, I'm sure that you actually employ that bike body separation when you've ridden, cause you've ridden in cobbles of Flanders <laughs> and that region and everything else too. And if you hold really tightly, did you ever have teammates or I don't know, maybe you did that yourself too, where you held tightly and then you found that like being loose and letting your bike work under you. Did you find that on the road as well? Yeah. Everything you're saying really resonates a lot. And I, I've felt a huge difference in this between the road bike and the mountain bike. I'll say the, the similarity is being loose and supple on the bike is so important because if you're loose and supple on the bike, you can actually get away with a lot more than you think you can and get away with it safely. Um, but to your point, usually what happens is when people start to get nervous and they think about crashing and all of the things that they don't want to happen, they get nervous, they tense up and it's the tensing up. You lose all that suppleness and then anything that you hit with the bike, any, your, ten, your tendency is to overreact. Um, and that tension is never good. And so the more that you can be relaxed and supple on the bike, the better. And that definitely maps on both sides. The thing that I've noticed really different in terms of the bike body separation is on the road bike, if I'm going around a corner, 
I can actually lean with my bike pretty far and I'll, I'll naturally do a little bit of counter steering, but I don't have to think too much about that because you can really lean with a bike a lot more on the road, but on the mountain bike, I'm noticing I really have to pay attention to that bike body separation around corners so much more. Cause to your point, the bike is moving more than the body and the counter steering. I, I wouldn't say I'm counter steering on purpose per se, but I can just feel there's way different traction. The way the traction responds underneath you is so much different if you're if you're leaning the bike and you and you have your body more upright. And it's so I would say that there is bike body separation on the road bike, but it's just it's more subtle. Like it doesn't have to be quite so exaggerated. And um, just doing some bike body separation drills on the mountain bike, like leaning it side to side as far as I can, and being like, whoa, I can actually lean the bike pretty far down there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's, you know, you, you don't, you never really get in those situations with a road bike. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I've always wondered, like watching the pros, um, ride road bikes. Are you, am I supposed to like ride it like a Moto GP bike? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like I, you're like leaned over with the bike, like, no, like not that far. No, definitely not. Yeah, I, this messed me up really bad one year because I had a director who was, we'll say, not the best person in the world, but um, who got in my head about my cornering, and my cornering had been, actually been really good. But then he just got in my head. and He's like, "You have to corner like a MotoGP racer," and I was watching these videos, and I was like, "That's like." opposite of what I do. And for a whole season, every corner I went into, I thought I was going to die because I I was like, okay, what do I do? And the point is that a road bike is so much lighter than a MotoGP bike. There's just so much less inertia that you have to fight. Like those guys are having to pull the bike down to the ground because there's so much weight that they're fighting and they're, they're using all of their body weight to pull the bike down. Whereas on a road bike, it's super light you weigh way more than your bike does. <laughs> like it's not the same thing. And what I've found that works for me, and I think probably works for a lot of people is if I just focus on putting all of my weight on the outside leg, and I've said it before on this podcast, but just yeah. all your effing weight on that outside leg, <laughs> everything else falls into place. And, and, it, and with cornering, I think, especially overthinking it is your worst enemy, right? Cause that's where you're going to start to think about looking at the ground, tensing up, doing all the things that you don't want to do. Whereas if you just watch where you're going and you have all your weight on the outside leg, you're naturally going to counter steer a little bit. You're naturally going to have your body in the right position. Your, your center of gravity is going to be in the right place. And that, that weight on the outside leg is going to be creating traction on your tires in a way that's going to feel really stable and in control. And that stability and control mentally is going to be great feedback. Cause you're going to be like, I got this. And that's, I mean, 80% of it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so, that's so interesting. I, I feel like that, that lesson transfers so well for, for everything, like thinking about that outside foot, um, and really putting weight on it. I was actually, it reminds me, I was, um, talking to Greg Menar and we were kind of talking about this where there's, um, this thing where it's like outside foot and then the inside arm. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you're almost pushing like the handlebar forward. Like, so let's say if you're going around a left-hand turn um, and it's flat, um, if you're on a road bike or mountain bike and your outside foot's down, you have your weight there. And then a lot of the times, like you kind of don't know what to do with your hands. (laughs) And (laughs) if you, if you were to think about like your outside his foot is down um, your right foot's down and then your left hand is kind of pushing 
the handlebars like forward a bit, like, like kind of that counter steering. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, obviously not like drifting or anything, but, um, I remember that, that like helped me a ton to, I don't know if it was just because I had something to focus on or like it, it just felt like I had so much more control. Yes. Yeah. And, and some that- people perceive that pressure is like a downward pressure or a forward pressure. Mm-hmm. Counter steering is always so tricky for people, but it's that, it's that counterbalance, which is different than the counter steering that you have between that outside foot and that inside hand. Those are like the main anchor points. Mm-hmm. And and Amber, even on a road bike, right? Like your 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 butt, even though it's on the saddle, isn't the anchor point. It's right. that op- opposing hand and foot, right? Yeah, no, I think when you have all that weight on the outside leg, it's naturally gonna have some pressure on that on that um, inside hand. And you can actually feel through the bike how well it's sticking to the ground. And that proprioceptive feedback is just a huge confidence boost because you you feel completely in control and you know you've got traction and you feel like you can trust your bike 100% through that corner. And that's going to allow you to remain supple and carry more speed and not break as much and not stare at the <laughs> ground and not do all the things that you shouldn't do. So it, it, it's really, it's, it goes, the communication on the bike is a two way street, right? Like you're moving mm-hmm. your body, you're manipulating the bike, but also what you're doing is creating feedback that your body is sensing, your brain is sensing, and it's going to build confidence or not, but we want to do all the things that are going to build confidence. Cause then you're more comfortable with speed and, and feeling in control. Totally. That's an an interesting point about that feedback loop. That's almost like what a good rider is really good at in the sense that they have a really clear, no static feedback loop between them and traction. And, and they know how to manipulate everything they need to, to be able to maintain traction. Cause for, for downhill racing in particular, Elliot, like that's the name of the game. Like (laughs) you're going down the hill, that part's taken care of in most cases. Sure. There's pedaling and, and you have to have that absolutely. And you have to be fit to be a good downhill racer. Very, very fit. Like I promise you when you look at, you know, Loic Bruni and you look at, you know, men on Carpenter, all these like top end, uh, they are incredible athletes. So they have that but it's that constant feedback loop of understanding where their traction's at and then how to modulate that and how to adjust it. In your mind, Elliot, what makes a good downhill racer? What makes the best downhill racers the best? Like what do they do? We talked about what we do us average people that, that holds us back, but what do the best do that allow them to get even further ahead that we might not be doing? Um, in terms, okay. So in terms of racing, the best people, have this incredible sense of what time is. Uh, Mm. There's a couple of, there's been some really cool examples of it over the years. There was a a race, world championships, and I think 2014, it's like Josh Bryslin was on fire that year. And um, he came out of the woods and he was like sitting down and messing with his goggles. And everyone was like, oh my God, he must have fallen. And then he goes through the split and he's two seconds up. And so it was, it kind of goes to this point about um, where do you need to push and where do you not need to push? You know, if, if you know, if you have a really good sense of, of what your average speed is um, and where is going to make that difference, you see a lot of people just like pedaling or um, pumping when you don't really need to and kind of wasting energy and things like that. And if you say, okay, this section is really important. This is the most important section on the whole trail. This is the most important straight on the whole trail. So let me 
make sure I really execute this turn or make sure that I carry some average speed here. So I think, um, you know, from a racing context and an overall speed context, when, you know, people are trying to get the the old KOMs, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I think it's, yeah, it's it's thinking about, um, it's thinking about the average speed. People put a lot of emphasis on the gnarly sections, but again, like we were talking about that gnarly section might only be three seconds long. And then the next straight that's super easy is 15 seconds long. So um, even though the gnarly section is what everyone's thinking about, um, it's really maybe the exit of that gnarly section or the section after that seems easy. Um, And I think if you kind of talking to people across a lot of different sports, you know, like a Loic Bruni or, um, <clears throat> you know, the top motocross riders, they always say the, <clears throat> the better I get, the more important I realize the easy sections are. Mm. Um, and I think that that's like something that, uh, that, that works really well. It's like, it's not just these one little sections; It's like the overall picture of everything. What about the risk side of things? Cause that's, <clears throat> that's a hard thing for a lot of people because so fear ramps up. So our perception of risk many times when fear gets introduced is, is different than when fear is not there. Right. But if we separate everything, it, the risks are kind of the same in the sense that like you are a body, a human body, and you're moving down the hill at X speed and there's trees all around you or something, right? And big <laughs> boulder. So, so like the risk is kind of there yet is perceived so differently on all of our ends. Like, mm-hmm. so, and, and that's kind of something that I want to get into, like on, on managing those risks and Amber, I know this is definitely something that's, that's more of like a, a personal focus for you and managing that relationship with the limbic system and everything else. So I don't know if you have any questions on that, but I'd really like to focus on this topic for a bit. Yeah. I just want to hear what Elliot has to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm super well, excited. It's so, it's so funny because I'm thinking the same thing because like for me, um, I was always really risk averse. Like I was always, whether I was racing motocross, like I was the last person to do the jump. Like I, when I was racing mountain bikes, like I never really had, had like one or two injuries. Um, but for me, I, I, I hated the feeling of riding over my head. Um, I would try to get as close as possible when, you know, you go to world championships. Um, but it was, it was an interesting one. It was so interesting because my thought was instead of trying to just go wild, um, I'm just going to out execute everyone. So if I can practice at like a 90% level where I'm pushing it, but I'm like increasing my 90% level, um, where if I make a mistake, it's not too bad. Maybe I just blow off the track or something. Um, but once I get to the race, um, I can ride at like a 98% level. And I, I think it's interesting because you hear a lot of people talking about this, like Loic Bruni was saying last year, um, one of the things that let him be so consistent was that toning it back a tiny bit. And, and that's easier said than done because like, how do you tone it back from a hundred to 99 or 98 <laughs> rather than like 80, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think for me, like I've really thought a lot about this relationship 
of risk and and especially downhill mountain biking because there is such a stereotype of yeah you just go out and pin it you like don't touch the brakes um and that's the way that you go fast and i think it's important for people to kind of understand their personalities where maybe you do have like you know downhill like a danny hart or brooke mcdonald who have like no fear um and can't ride like that and don't care if they crash but like (laughs) i'm like totally not that guy so yeah, I think, I think risk is, um, I think risk is, uh, it's important not to think that that is what makes you a good rider. Um, to think that, that you have to have this huge appetite for risk to be a better rider. And I think, um, knowing where you're comfortable at is actually going to let you improve much faster because you're not focused on how gnarly the thing is you're like (laughs) you're having fun you're like focusing on your skills like that feedback loop and things like that and you know one of the reasons why I was saying that um for you Amber is I feel like on a mountain bike it's much easier to make a mistake Mm. like I can lose traction I can just take a foot off or like I can crash a turn and I I can just, you know, throw the bike away, run it out or whatever. But there's like not that much room for air on a road bike. And <laughs> like, like I've never crashed on my road bike. Like I'm, there's no way that I ever want to crash. And, and so I wonder how you guys do that. Like, how do you even begin to get close to the edge? Because it's to me like so much scarier getting close to the edge on a road bike. Oh man. Well, let me first just say everything that you just said was so validating for me personally, (laughs) 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 because I feel the same way. And, and I, I do think that a lot of, especially what we, I mean, a lot of, you know, the, the Instagram content, shall we say is very like, send it. And it's all this <laughs> radical stuff. And it's amazing what people can do. Don't get me wrong. I find it super inspiring, but I also think that the, the piece that's missing from those videos is all of the preparation and practice that goes into being able to do something like that. And especially in a culture where we have people talking all the time about hacking this and hacking that. It's like, <laughs> right. you don't want to hack your way to like, some gnarly descent. Not, totally. not a good idea. And, and my approach to this, so to your point, road biking is, yeah, you hit the deck on a road bike, like mm. dirt don't hurt, but asphalt's <laughs> a different story. Yeah. <laughs> and I it's a knife's totally. edge. And on the other side of that knife's edge, it's pure consequence. It's yeah, like, yeah. It's totally. so totally. that's the thing. Like you can't cross the line and just casually, like it doesn't happen that way. Yeah. Like, yeah. Day's over. I know? will say there is some buffer and the buffer is being able to save it. And I, and I will say like over the years, I learned how to save it better. You know, I got better and better at saving it. Um, and I also got better and better at falling. Like there's some yeah. skill to falling, you know, make Huge. like not spreading like yourself out point. and trying to catch yourself, <laughs> you know, with arms extended, you know, like it's the drop and roll. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But so there is a little bit of buffer, but, um, over the years, my approach that I've, I've come to on a personal level is, is exactly what you've been saying. And the way that I think about it is when you're pushing beyond your comfort zone, there's a, there's a, a very narrow window in there between 
getting beyond what's comfortable and then hitting a limit where you're going into full fight or flight mode, right? And and so the point at which you're actually terrified is a point at which you can no longer learn anything because mm-hmm. you're yeah. in full survival mode. And our bodies are just, you know, when you go into survival mode, it's like, it's either or, it's binary. Like you're not just you can't really step back from that and absorb and think about it and be aware of what you're doing because <laughs> your body's like, we're about to die. <laughs> yeah. So finding that, that window where, okay, maybe you're outside of your comfort zone. So you're learning and you're growing, but you're not so far out of your comfort zone that you're out of control and your body is just freaking out. And, and I really believe in that because if you feel in control, then you're going to build confidence and you're going to be able to learn and absorb and be aware of what you're doing, which will allow you, like you said, like if you're, if you're just really good at that 90% and executing on that over and over, what constitutes your 90% is going to continue to grow, right? Like your comfort zone will mm-hmm. get bigger. Mm-hmm. What was exactly. the edge of your comfort zone six months ago will be way beyond it, you know, six months from now. But being patient with that and not feeling like you have to just smash this hill and go out of your comfort zone and feel completely out of control to progress, you know, Mm. being patient with yourself. I mean, it's amazing what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And there's a, it was really interesting for me thinking about this because I remember I went up to Whistler and um, I had one of those lit pros and I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to like set up a, and it's a GPS kind of tracking device um, that a lot of the motocrossers use, kind of like a, a Strava, but you can set some um, splits and things like that. So I went and rode this trail, um, one of the downhill trails, and I just rode it like 10 times back to back and did like race runs. And the interesting thing was like, if I took my best, like my optimal run, I think I had maybe 10 splits on maybe a two minute course. And if I took my optimal run, my optimal run was actually, I think it was something like four or five seconds better than my best run. And so when you think about that, it's like, okay, if I were to get, you know, my best, you know, at the time I was probably like a, around usually three, maybe four seconds off the podium. And it's like, if I could just actually do my optimal run, then I would be on the podium. So it's actually not that I need to get faster. It's like, I actually just need to be able to execute at my highest level every single time. And that was, I think, one of the things that really made me think, um, you know, when, when you, that a race result or like a, an overall time isn't actually that great of feedback because you, it makes you think that you just need to get better everywhere you're just like oh i'm just i just lost you know like i lost the race like i am just slow like i have to get better at every single thing that i'm doing and i felt like um it was super important to not only know what i was bad at but to know what i was good at because you hit these diminishing returns where like for me um i was really good at jumping and to make any more improvement at jumping or like going around a berm it would take so much more effort um to go from like an eight to a nine or whatever, but like on wet roots, I was not good. <laughs> so, you know, I, I remember like just sitting 
buying some wet roots in France and just going and pushing and doing those sections like over and over and over. And it made such a big difference. You know, I could go from a four to a six, like really easily. So not only like knowing what you're bad at, but knowing what you're good at. So you don't over, over practice that, or, um, you know, think that every single aspect of your riding is, you know, equal. (laughs) (laughs) I need to do all the things. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. You kind of have to be okay with it, like realistic with yourself that like, I'm really good at this. I'm not as good at this. And this is where I need to improve. And it's that whole concept of strengths, weaknesses and limiters and Mm -hmm. your weaknesses and your limiters are not the same thing. Like you can have weaknesses that don't limit you on race day. You mentioned something and this is actually brings up a good point that, that you are naturally risk averse. And, um, so, and, and I know that sounds crazy, right? Um, so I've always like, I'm risk averse back when I was racing motocross and down. Yeah. So like, it's funny when I think about like our CEO, Nate, uh, and, and I, and when we talk, I feel like Nate kind of feels like I'm from a different planet where risk <laughs> isn't the same. And sometimes I feel like that and, and where in, but I, my whole life was extremely risk averse. Like I was a very, very cautious kid and with motocross and everything else, extreme caution. My son's the same way. Uh, I I hit an inflection point though. And I I hit this point where I guess that, uh, uh, perhaps a, a level of awareness, but I got to the point where I had introspection where I was like, okay, take an external look at what I'm doing. Like, Hey, like, look what you just did. Okay. So you just did that. You did it repeatedly and you were nowhere near at that level just, you know, a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And that like, it, it actually, it hit me. It was a big moment. I had, it was down in Southern California at Lake Elsinore back in the day. And <laughs> yeah. I, I had that moment where it hit me and I was like, Hey, like I actually am better than I think. And a lot of the mm-hmm. time I come into these things almost like over exaggerating the fear and putting so much pressure on myself. And, and, and I got to this point where I went, okay, look, like I'm not the best, but I just went from step and these are arbitrary, but step seven to eight. And, and I didn't think that I could do that at all when I was sitting there at step seven. So why not take another step to step nine? And like that, that pattern of introspection of, and, and perhaps you could call it like self-congratulatory. I don't know, but (laughs) it works for me. And looking back and saying like, Hey, I just did that. Like, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Pat yourself on the back and take confidence for the next thing you go up against because you've done something good. So that was really helpful for me. But I don't know if your experience is any different, Elliot, where you felt like if you had those kind of level up moments or how you managed that. Yeah, they. that is such an interesting thing to think about. Um, kind of like, how do you build confidence? Because you could right? Like if, if we're talking about like riding to our maximum potential, um, you have to have confidence to even reach there. Like you think you, sometimes you think you're at a hundred percent, but you're only at 95 because you don't have the confidence, um, to get any higher than that. And I, and I feel like that is a lot of, that really resonates with me as well, because I think it is important to, especially if you're riding every day and really trying to make progress you're too close to it to really understand you're making progress, like, you know, in really small increments on a daily basis. And yeah, really taking those moments to say, Hey, where was I 
like a month ago or two months ago, especially if you go to a trail, if you haven't been to a trail or done, like, I, I feel like for me, the easiest thing for that was like road bike climbs where like I wouldn't have done them for a long time. And then I would go and just be like, man, I just like smashed that thing. And I was like under heart rate or whatever. And I was like, Hey, like, can I feel pretty fit today? <laughs> but, um, I, yeah, I, I do think it's really important to, um, to figure out like, what is it that gives you confidence for me? Like it was never a race result. Um, it was always how good was my process? How well did I train? Um, you know, did I practice? Did I prepare? Did I stretch? All of these things where if I looked at that, I could say like, man, I did everything I could do, um, everything I wanted to do. Um, and now I'm prepared for this race. And I think it's kind of the same thing. If you, even if you're just a recreational rider where, um, taking a look back at some of the things you maybe weren't able to do six months ago. And then also um, not getting frustrated <laughs> like, <laughs> when like not, not letting your confidence drop, you know, like not going backwards because um, just because you've tried something a couple of times, like all the people who can do that thing or are pros have put in like an incredible amount of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think, I think that's like such a great point. The point you made on confidence is really interesting to me. Cause like my, like, uh, in terms of how I build confidence for me personally, the way I do that is by finding hard commitments for myself that are still achievable and then following through on those commitments. And if I do that, mm -hmm. then I get more confident in myself. It's like that totally. simple. Right. And yeah. And, and that's kind of the thing about with, with bike riding and in particular, like, you know, when we talk about structured training, everything else, every workout's a commitment, every interval's a commitment and they're all challenging. And so when you get that one done, then you can have confidence going into the next thing. And I feel like that pattern definitely applies to even the high fear environment that we have and perhaps in particularly applies to that with, with, with descending and, and technical skill yeah. on mountain bikes. I, I want to talk about speed and, and how you process everything at speed. Because when, once again, when we watched like, uh, so at EWS North star, we have this on our YouTube channel. You should check it out. I recorded all my race runs and then Richie rude, who is two time enduro world champion, incredible rider. He came down to, uh, and, and sat down with me and critiqued my GoPro videos. And I looked at all of his times and he was like, a third faster than me on some of these <laughs> descents. <laughs> like, and that's like, we're talking like, we're talking like some of them were short too, like three minutes long. And he's like, yeah, I did it in two minutes. <laughs> what was the biggest thing? Like, what did he notice? He sees the matrix. And like, what I'm getting at with this is like, like he sees a different plane of riding and, and, but the, the, and the, and if you watch the videos, you'll see, he points out all the lines that he sees and his technique mm -hmm. allows him to be able and his strength that he's built and everything else, all of his skill, everything adds up to support the lines that he's going to take. Right. And, and to support yeah. that speed. But the main thing that I came across is I was thinking about that and I was like, I seriously felt like like a, like a, a bad, like laptop trying to play a hard video game. And like the CPU fans are going crazy and you can't even touch the laptop because it's so hot. Like when I was going down those downhill trails and trying to process everything, I was like mm. too fast CPU overload. And like, 
I'm like a bad, like dual core processor and Richie Rude's like some like quintuple core processor over here. He's got the super computer. <laughs> yeah. And he's just able to process so many things is how do you do that? Like, is that once again, just a step of like incrementally right. getting used to it, but what you process at that speed, I don't even know how it's possible. So this is actually really interesting because there was, especially at a downhill race, um, it kind of goes back to knowing like how fast you're going to be going. Mm-hmm. So when you would walk a downhill course, it was like super rare to get it right. You would hear everyone being like, yeah, I think I'm going to go here. I'm going to go here, like put my tires on this rock. And then once you start riding, your tires don't even touch that rock because you're going too fast. <laughs> and I think this kind of gets at, um, like he's actually probably processing less than you because <laughs> <laughs> my mind just blew. If you're not watching this, yeah. <laughs> but it's well, like, if you think about it, um, like a good example of this is let's say that there's a rock garden and, um, when you're first getting started, you like roll through the rock garden, but then as you get faster, you say like, I'm actually just going to jump the whole thing. Um, and, <laughs> and like, same with like, um, when you watch like some really good mountain bikers, they will, their tires are like touching less things, you know, they're hitting this rock, which is then kind of bouncing them to here. And so they're actually like maneuvering less terrain. And it's not to say that that's easier, but um, I think that like at some point you kind of have to say, I'm going to not so much, like if there's three rocks in a row, like, when you first start riding, you're like, okay, I'm going to focus on going over this rock, this rock, and then this rock. And then you get a little faster and you say like, I'm just going to just focus on maybe the second rock. And then you get a little bit faster and you say, actually, I'm not even going to focus on the rocks at all. I'm going to like look ahead, maybe 30 feet and know that like I'm comfortable enough to go over those rocks. And so if you thought about gaining speed, it wouldn't be about saying like this rock, this rock, this rock or whatever, you know, like really quickly, um, you know, Richie's probably like not even thinking about those rocks at all. And I think that as you start to get faster, it is kind of um, about not so much processing things faster, but just the confidence again, to say like, I'm okay to ride over these rocks um, and do these things um, when and not so much like get caught up in the weeds. Yeah. It's almost knowing what to care about or what 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 is consequential and what isn't and filtering that out. And I'm sure Amber for you in the road scene, like a lot of us, and maybe you've had the same experience, Elliot, when you're riding with a group and that group is super tight and you're totally. like going through like, in a, and especially like in a race scenario, there's so much going on. That's like, overwhelming. yeah, I would be freaking out. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's honestly, it's exactly what you're describing. And, and, what you're saying resonates a lot with me because what I've noticed over the years, not only with cycling, but other sports too, is that the main difference I notice between experts and amateurs is the experts know how very little they actually need to focus on. 
Like there are only a few things that they actually care about that are of consequence to what they're trying to do. Whereas the amateur hasn't figured out yet what's relevant and what's not relevant. So they're mm. processing everything. It's kind of like when you're learning to read and it's a difference between like having to sound out every letter versus mm. like once you're reading, you're, you're, you're barely scanning, you're scanning in like huge chunks of text and your, your eyes aren't scanning through every letter of every word. And it's kind of like yeah. that. And on the road that the analogy would be like, if I'm in the group and I'm kind of a newbie, I'm, I'm thinking about what gear do I need in? Should I be braking? Who's on my left? Who's on my right? Who's behind me? Who's in front of me? How many people are around me? Do I need to be drinking? Do I need to be eating? What, how far before that hill's coming up? Who's on the front of the group? How far away am I from the front? Whereas once you're actually, you've been racing for a while, like I don't, whoever's on my right and left and behind me, I, it's like not even part of my reality. Like I'm, I'm somewhat aware, but I know that they're aware enough of their space that we're all going to keep each other safe. I'm mostly focused on making sure my front wheels in a, in a safe place, but I don't have to look at my front wheel to know that. Right. Cause I'm so used to my bike that I know I have a sense of like, I have a sense of where it is. So I don't have to look at it and I can just look at what's going on ahead of me. I can look actually ahead of the riders in front of me, watch what's happening in the race and still have enough spatial awareness to keep myself safe in the group. But I'm not focusing on all of those small things. And then, you know, if I need to get a drink or something, I might bring myself back to a place in the group where I don't have to think about who's around me or what's going on in the race. Cause I know it's a lull moment and, you know, get some food, but you're choosing those times. And you mentioned before too, about the guy that was coming out of the woods and adjusting his goggles. Cause he knew, he knew how far up he was. And so he was judiciously using his mental energy and focus where it counted. And it's so hard to figure out when you're, when you're beginning. And it's one of those things that just, it comes with experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> I feel like it's cool to see how the road, the ro it's the same thing. It, it aligns on both sides. And we probably all do it. Like when you drive your car, you don't mm -hmm. pay attention to every dotted line on the lane to make yes. sure that you're in the right spot. Right. Like you just, you kind of develop your threshold rises and then you also know what to weed out and everything else. Super, super cool point. Um, and I guess that just comes with more time, right? Like that mm -hmm. in terms of the actionable takeaway there, it's putting in the reps to be able to get there. Um, <clears throat> I want to ask about training for DH racing. Like what does training look like for DH racers? How much time do you spend on the bike? How much time do you spend doing interval training, uh, versus technical training? And how much time do you spend doing strength training? Yeah, totally. I think it was, we have, um, and you know, I don't like know the schedule for like the road, but we have this huge gap where this, like the season ends in September and then it doesn't like the first world cup isn't until like April. Um, so it was really about you, you had all this time to do these really like deliberate blocks where in October, November, um, I would just do a ton of road miles. And I, that was just me. Like, I just loved riding on the road and, and stuff like that. I'd usually like travel around and like go to a couple of different places. Um, and you can really build up that base. So I think that base training is um, just a lot of time doing stuff, right? Like you'd have like those three a day kind of things where you go do a gym workout in the morning, go on a big ride and then maybe do like a small gym stuff in the evening kind of thing. And that kind of, as you move further and, and closer and closer to the season, it gets more and more intense where you're doing a lot of um, like threshold work, like those 
you know, four minute kind of intervals. We do like a lot of, a lot of that stuff. And, um, and then you have, um, kind of the really top end stuff, because if you think about it, um, from a training's perspective, you are working, um, kind of all the different energy systems throughout the weekend where you need like a lot of aerobic fitness so that you can have this repeatability from a Thursday to a, a Saturday, um, so that I can perform just as well in practice on Thursday as I do on Sunday. So that's kind of where that base comes in, um, and being able to recover. And then you have like the threshold stuff, which is probably kind of actually the race, um, being able to, you know, know how to flush out the lactic acid and things like that. Um, and then you have like the kind of top end stuff, which is kind of inside the race where you're coming out of a turn and you are trying to put out those like, you know, 1500 Watts or pump or do something like that. So it is like really explosive, um, stuff within, um, within the run. So it was kind of, um, being able to be strong, but it was also, even though it's really short, um, <laughs> air quotes, uh, <laughs> it doesn't feel short uh, at the moment. <laughs> it doesn't feel short. It doesn't feel short. And like, you know, I'm kind of just like thinking back, like it, it, it is so there's this like muscular endurance kind of thing where the speed that you're able to carry, um, you know, <laughs> you kind of think about those like practice heroes, like when you go out to a practice track or see somebody like even on the road or whatever, like you see somebody pin it up a hill past you. And it's like, yeah, that's just a small piece of it. And are they able to hold that intensity throughout a whole race um, to be able to do, you know, at the end of a track, you might have this crazy gap that people are doing in practice, but at the end of a three or four minute run, you're just like a noodle. Um, <laughs> So, so I think that the training was kind of, um, making sure you had that kind of anaerobic top end and the strength, um, and being able to handle that, that a lot of the gym stuff was like injury prevention, making sure you're strong, um, and then getting a good base so that you could kind of make it through the race weekend. Did you ever train with a power meter at all? I'd be super curious to know like what, like the top, like downhill racers can do with power. Well, yeah, like, um, I never did it on my downhill bike. Maybe I did once or twice when I was doing some intervals, but I know like Brooke McDonald, he's, and they had, they had like for the world's team this one year in the UK, one of the deciding factors was like power contest. <laughs> it was super funny. Yeah, like, I think that was part of it. Like there was, there was like three or four riders who were like, vying for the last spot because the world championships for us, each country gets, I think six or seven people. Um, and there was everyone that was kind of tied. And I think like Sam Dale or, and I remember Brooke McDonald from New Zealand, like they were putting out like 2200 or oh like, God. like that's power. Yeah. Like it's crazy. crazy. <laughs> like, wow. Really? Yeah. And like, I never, it was kind of one of those things where, um, you have those people like Brooke, who's just like naturally strong. Um, for myself, it was kind of like we and my trainer, uh, we were always like, where's the diminishing returns there? Mm -hmm. Like how, 
how much effort do you have to put in? Would I have to put in to go from like, yeah, I think like my max power was like 16, 1700 Watts. Which and is no joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> Just take a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of like, you know, um, how much benefit is, am I going to get from adding on a couple hundred Watts there versus how much training I have to do? Um, and, and like, what does that look like? You know, if Amber, like if you were going to train and like try to get this like super powerful, that actually is a detriment to your endurance and stuff like that. So it's like kind of trying to find that trade off of like, what is the optimal kind of relationship and balance between all of these like max Watts versus sustained Watts over a certain period. Mm. Yeah, that makes yeah. total sense. Total sense. Yeah, you can't just, I mean, if if you're just going to hit like max two, three second power all the time, like you're going to have to recover a lot between those. And it's not really necessarily <laughs> yeah. going to develop like really great muscular endurance. You know? <laughs> right. right. Totally. So. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you I'll go ahead, Elliot. No, I was just going to say like, it's, it's super interesting um, because you have like a BMXer who's like, yeah, like 3000 or something like, and like 200, yeah, like 200 cadence and like, um, but it's, but yeah, it's, um, when you start getting into those really high level at the top of the sport, you can't be everything. Like you can't take a tour de France rider and put them on a BMX course and vice versa. You kind of have to. Um, it would be I funny, would but that. That would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a good point. Like, first of all, it's kind of funny when you mentioned that it's like, that must've been the year when team, like maybe team sky was trying to make a downhill team when they were trying to make, you know, power the, the qualifier. Yeah, right. but, um, but like, you know, if it was as simple and not that putting out 2200 Watts is simple or achievable for hardly anybody, but if it was as simple as just peak power, we'd have a whole lot more people doing downhill racing at that sort of level. And mm -hmm. instead, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a very different game. Uh, I want to get into reconning a course too. So like, well, I guess there's like the side of, and actually more of the implication in terms of how you ride a course differently when you have reconned it versus when you ride it blind. So like mm -hmm. most of us average people, to be honest, we probably ride a course, if not entirely blind, relatively blind. And, and here's what I mean by that. Like just riding a lap isn't reconning the course necessarily. Uh, I'm sure that when, like, what did you do when you do a DH track walk, Elliot? Like what, what are the things you're looking to accomplish and how long does that usually take you? Like it's a run that might take you, you know, two and a half to, to six minutes to go down on your bike, but how long was the DH track process and what did you look for in that? Yeah, totally. And I'm really interested to hear Amber's um, <laughs> thoughts on this as well. <laughs> because, um, for us, it is, it is like for, if we're talking about downhill, um, you know, every single rock, right? Like that it is a, it's a pretty long hike in some of them. So like we would do it over the course of two hours maybe. Wow. Um, but you're looking at it's, it is, it's one run. And, and so I would know, um, exactly what I was going to do. You know, I would know, like, I'm going to go to the left of this little pebble. I'm going to take half a pedal stroke and then I'm going to break right here. I'm going to take a breath here. I'm going to like relax here. I'm going to refocus here. And so like, I would, 
you know, go the way that I would do it is the easiest for me was like to walk through some sections, get my lines and, and not be too rigid on those. Like they would always change, especially as the track changed, but I would walk down and then I would close my eyes and I would go back from the start and like revisualize it. And then I'd walk some more and then I would go back from the start and I'd revisualize it. And I remember actually, I went through this phase where um, I would get a helmet cam um, from like the practice or something like that. And I would start it and I would try to visually go through it with the helmet cam and I would see how close I could get um, to when they would finish. And um, I remember I got pretty, pretty good at it. I would like finish within like five seconds or so of like that finishing time. Um, but it was, it was like more about like how, because when you think about it on a world cup weekend, you have, four or five runs and then you have to be kind of at topish speed um so it's kind of a waste of time to use the time on the track to learn the track so you really have to you shouldn't be going down the track being like was there a left turn here <laughs> or a right turn <laughs> um, and so um yeah i think in terms of of like what it looked like to, you know, learn a world cup track. It was really about, again, like being able to process that information and figure out what's relevant. You know, there's a fast section here, but like, I probably don't really care that there's a bunch of little pebbles and stuff like that. But on certain sections, like I care that there's like a little two inch pebble here um, or something where I'm going to go to the left or right. Maybe it's a marker or, or whatever. Um, but that is, you know, much different than riding something blind. Um, <laughs> and I've done, there was a race called Trans Cascadia and it was like all blind enduro racing. So you actually had no idea what was coming up and you're like going as fast as you could. And I, it's so fun. Like, it's so cool to just kind of be discovering. You don't really know what's going on and you have to like we were talking about the kind of being loose on your bike. Um, it's kind of being able to be loose in a mindset as well to be like, I don't know what's coming up here, um, but I'm going to give myself a little bit of extra room or I'm going to, um, I know that, you know, this is, turn is looking a bit tight Um so I'm going to try to find like an edge to ride on, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try to find like something to turn off of, um, and things like that. But, you know, to me, like the blind riding, I always think about that on road bikes because it's so much more punishing if you get your braking points wrong. Like on a mountain bike, we were talking about that earlier. We're like, you just hit the brakes and like, yeah, sure. I might skid off the track, but like, if you, are locked in a turn on a road bike. Like I can't, I am going to like flap the road. Like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With, with that, Amber, how did you do that? Cause that's what you'll face at Cape Epic, right? In the mm -hmm. sense that it would be entirely unrealistic. And I don't even know if the courses are actually laid out even in advance, like quite to that level, but 
but it would be entirely unrealistic to ride Cape Epic before you race Cape Epic because that mm. would be really bad training, number one. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> you wouldn't have much energy left. So so how did you manage that with with road riding too, Amber? Is it similar in, in the respect like there, you kind of just like add a bit more insurance to things, so to speak, like a bit more of a wiggle room? How'd you do it on the road? So that's kind of interesting. It really depends on, so in road, you know, we have crits and road races and time trials. And so what you were talking about course reconning, I, it really resonates with me in terms of time trials. So with the visualization, I think that's super important. Um, in some of the time trials that I really got serious about and did better in, I would either drive the course and have a video from driving the course, or I would get on Google earth and like map out like landmarks of, okay, there's going to be a right turn to this traffic sign. And then I would have that compared to with like a ride GPS where I would say, okay, from that turn to that sign is about 10% grade. So I know I'm going to have to punch it there. And I would just have a plan and a visualization in my head. And in the best case scenario, I actually had a video that I would just, I would watch the video over and over. And in my head, I would be saying exactly what you're saying. Like, I'm going to break here. I'm going to focus here. I'm going to hit this hard. I'm going to recover here. I'm going to take a breath here. And so on the day, there are no decisions. Everything has been decided. So there's so much less cognitive load and you can just go. And there's, there's no surprises. And you just, you know, the course, like the back of your hand and even better if you can pre-write it. Um, Whereas in a crit or a road race, when it's a mass start event, you have to be really responsive to what people around you are doing. And people are so unpredictable that, and you don't have control over what people are doing. So you don't have control over when someone's going to attack or what line they decide to take. And so reconning, for example, for a crit course, I would walk the course, every crit I ever rode ever, I walked the course and I would always, and it was exactly that process of like, what's relevant, what's not. So if there's a manhole cover in the corner, that's relevant. So I just know that every time I set up for that corner, I need to be hard on the inside of that, or I need to give myself enough space that I'm not going over it. Or there's a manhole cover in the middle of the road on a straight section. Don't really care about that. Don't need to remember that. So, you know, just picking out, you know, what are the, what are the relevant pieces? And then most of the road races and especially stage races were all blind because it's just not realistic to go, you know, hop in the car, drive two hours away, run a, you know, an 80 mile loop in the car and then feel fresh and recovered for the next day. In some cases I, right. I would do that. And it was really, really helpful. Um, and then you're relying on a map and a course profile, which you learn very quickly to never, ever trust the course. profile. <laughs> 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 <They> all, why? <laughs> but, but that's like, that's kind of the, the best you have sometimes. And it's just like, okay, yeah. you know, it's going to be 15 K to the first climb. The first climb is roughly two K long. And you just sort of settle in and you know it's coming and then you're just like, okay, looks like the road's going uphill. This looks like about the right place that we would expect the climb to be. This is probably the climb. And then sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Um, and there were times, I mean, most of the time the traffic control on the courses was really good and the way they would set it up is you'd have a race envelope. So you'd have motos ahead of you and then the caravan behind you. So like they're kind of moving along and as the, the lead motos and cars are coming through, they're pulling traffic off to the side. So generally speaking, it's, it's mostly safe, but I mean, I've been in races where you're bombing down a descent and there's a tour bus coming up. And that's where you just, you know, to your point, like you're just, you're looking really far ahead and you're just anticipating like, and you're anticipating in a relaxed and supple manner. So if something happens, you can respond rather than react. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes back to like that little buffer zone where it's like knowing how to save it. 
yeah, yeah. It's that. I feel like, yeah, I forgot to mention that, but that like being able to save it and being able to crash is so important. Um, like, I think that it's when you look at like a beginner rider and, and even some more intermediate riders, especially on the mountain bike, um, there would be a situation where like an advanced rider would crash or like fall over, but it wouldn't even be a thing, Mm -hmm. right? Like you would just step off the bike or like maybe it would just be a little bit wild and you would save it. Whereas like the intermediate rider would maybe fall and the beginner rider would maybe like actually get hurt. Yeah. Um, So, but yeah, that, that reminds me of like, you talking about coming up in the tour bus reminds me of like doing those urban races. I'm so glad that those like are not really a thing anymore. Like there was like, there was like a couple of years where it was like, they were like super important and you had to like actually go there. And I remember doing this one in Chile and coming down and there's like dogs running across oh. the street, like, like right in the thing, you're like hopping a stair set and there's like a dog there and you're like, uh, okay. <laughs> so sketchy. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine that. that it's, it's fun. So I, I, I served a church mission in Chile for two years and I was in Valparaiso. And then like later uh, on, when yeah. I came back and got into mountain biking. I was like, they race down those roads. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> you're joking me. And, and the main Never reason, again. like, yeah, they were steep and gnarly, but the main reason I'm like, people just don't understand how many stray dogs there are in that country. Like, <laughs> totally, it's like, <laughs> totally. it's yeah, a hazard, that's right? so funny. Um, so, and this is actually a really good dovetail to kind of the last topic I want to cover on technical riding and everything else before we get into talking about grow. So, Okay. So there's the other side of things where, well, so a lot of people just assume that the top DH racers always have perfect runs. Like when mm. Aaron Gwynn wins, it's because he had a perfect run. And then the reason that somebody else didn't win is because they have a mistake. And, and perhaps that's true in some cases, but my assumption is actually that there are probably, there's probably a whole different relationship with mistake management when you're going down like a downhill race, like mistakes are made and it's like how you kind of recover from those. So less than like technically speaking about how to recover from a mistake. Cause that's so like variable, right. That totally <laughs> depends on the scenario there. I want to talk about like upstairs, what happens because it's really easy. And you know, I, I have, I've never done a DH race. I've only done some enduro races. That's the closest I get to that, but I usually do XC, um, and, or crit racing or anything else. But when I make a mistake, there's a temptation. And I bet it's the way for, this way for all of us to be like, well, a mistake's been made like done, <laughs> it's over. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we lose focus. How would, how do you make a mistake and then mentally recover mid race, whether that's a crash or whether that's just missing a line. Right. Yeah. That's so such a great point. Um, yeah. And that, that's, um, in downhill, especially like you, it's really rare to have a perfect run. Like those are the runs that you see that are just like those historic runs where you're like, man, they were on a different level. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think, so the thing that I always did, um, I had to, a lot of people talk about like clearing their head and just like, you know, blacking out and like being in the zone. But for me, it was the exact opposite. So like my best runs, I could like recite every single thing that I did and like how it felt, what I did, where I pedaled, like, what I was thinking about. Um, and so it was more about concentration and when I would make a mistake or when like some doubt would creep into my head or when I would lose focus, 
I would always have a, um, I would always have a cue for myself mm-hmm. where I could just like repeat this thing back. Um, and for me, it was always like, you know, there would be those times where like I would come through a section and I would hear it good. And like, I would be like, that was pretty good. And like, that was terrible that I would say that because like, that means I've lost focus. And, um, and that means that I'm content. Um, because like, if I'm saying that's good enough, uh, then like, I'm not going faster. So like when I would do that, I would just say like, okay, go faster. Like, like get more, you know? Um, and, and I would just say those things to myself to kind of bring myself back to reality. And I thought that that was like a really, a good tool that I used, um, was just to have some sort of cue to keep myself on track because like you were saying, when you make a mistake, especially in a, like the shorter the event, the more harder it is mentally to come back from it because you just lost time. It's impossible to like make up that time. Even if you had a perfect run, it would have been better if you didn't make the mistake. Mm-hmm. So I think it's about trying to somehow stay in the moment. Um, and that's kind of different for everyone, but I always find that if I'm thinking about the past at all, um, if I thought, even if it's good, like whether it's that I hit a section good or I hit a section bad, or I wanted to hit something or, or when you're about to come up on something and you're, and you're like, I'm offline. I think that's one of the other things that makes mountain bikers good is that they are comfortable when things don't go right. Um, and, and I think that's the same for all athletes, um, professional athletes is that, you have, right? Like I would, I had planned out, you know, to the inch where I wanted to go. But when you're pushing, maybe I'm like two feet to the left of that line. And it's not about saying like, okay, the run's over now because I'm offline. It's just about saying like, okay, cool. Here we go. And do this. Do this. <laughs> like, um, so I think like <laughs> the point is, um, yeah, just trying to stay in the moment, like no matter, not thinking about the future, not thinking about the past, just saying like, here's what I'm going to do. Same with what Amber said about when you're there, it should come easy. Even if it is like a blind race where like that preparation before, um, lets you, lets you have that kind of confidence, um, where you're not having to make a ton of decisions. Yeah. That, that I, I assume that you, this is kind of funny because we didn't anticipate this podcast being this like juxtaposition of road and, and, and off-road and how they're actually really similar. But this is fascinating to me because I'm sure Amber, you, you primarily rode in something I in a time trial, it was just you. And I'm sure there were moments where you, you didn't, you know, the plan did, wasn't being executed as you had, had anticipated, but especially as a domestique, because that's what your role was in many cases. And cause then, you know, there's so many things that have to go right in order to hit your plan, <laughs> how it needs to. And they're dependent upon so many other people, not just on your team, but all the other teams. Is it similar for you? Like, did, did you find to, to kind of keep the motivation and keep focus, even when things are going haywire, so to speak in the middle of a race? Oh yeah. I, I think there's, there's a big difference here, which is, um, I'll quote my husband, David, who was a downhill ski racer. Cause so he used to race slalom. So those races like, like yours are very, very short in some cases, like with slalom, sometimes it's seconds long. So I would get nervous before a race and he would look at me like I was nuts and just be like, what are you worried about? You've got like three hours to figure this out. (laughs) 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 Time-wise, there's a much bigger buffer 
to come back from mistakes as they happen. But I think that the underlying principles are exactly the same, which is stay present. You have to be present and meet the moment and meet what's happening in the moment and getting too far ahead of yourself and trying to anticipate or worry about what might happen. It's irrelevant. You have to just handle what's happening right now. And sometimes that's the Peloton's noodling along. So, okay, maybe it's a good time to eat. And then sometimes it's going berserk and you just have to go, even if you don't want to, um, I love your idea about using a cue and I do a similar thing using a mantra where if I find myself kind of getting out of my head either cause I'm really scared or I'm really nervous, um, having a mantra that just kind of brings me back to the present, it brings me back to like, what are the physical sensations right now? Or like one that I like to use is like chin up eyes ahead. And it's just kind of like, okay, I'm checking back in with my body. Where, where am I looking right now? Where is my focus? What's happening ahead of me? Uh, and what do I need to do to meet this moment? And it's so hard to do because you can get totally caught up in something that happened 10 K ago, but it doesn't matter. It's done. Like you're now 10 yeah. K ahead. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. This is like a, a, a good lesson for all of us to even think about with our training. Like you do an interval and it doesn't go as you planned. It's really tempting when we have any sign of bad news to kind of throw it away, but but there's so much to be gained when we stick with it. And to give people some context too, like Amber, you mentioned, you know, slalom skiing and, and downhill mountain biking is no different in terms of, it's not uncommon to have the top 10 of a downhill race to all be within one to two seconds. Like mm -hmm. think about that. Just like visualize a person coming across the finish line and another person one second behind that. And to think that 10 riders on totally separate runs, not riding with each other, all came down within that same second. It shows just like how close it is to like the absolute, you know, peak performance level that you can achieve when that many athletes are that close. So it's like extra tempting in those situations just to be like, I made one imperfect or imperfect step. So therefore throw the whole thing out, but that's not what it's about. And, and that's definitely not how you improve, right? You improve by, yeah. by finding ways to adapt to that and then continuing thereafter. You know, Elliot. so yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Amber. I was just going to ask you, there must've been races where like you just, you won ugly, like it wasn't pretty, <laughs> but you won. <laughs> I remember, I remember like I had a couple, um, I did really well at a crankworks race. Um, we got a podium there and there was, um, like in the middle of the, of the track, there was like this 180 turn and my foot came off and I was kind of like riding two feeted like through there. And I was like, okay, like all good, just get back going. And then at the very end, like I hit this bump and like nose freely down this big hill, like almost crashed. And then I was like, okay, I guess I'm still up. So like, just keep it was like kind of into the, into the finish line. There's like this photo of me, like almost going over the bars and then, um, yeah, like finishing second or third, I think it was. And, uh, Oh, my internet connection might be bad again. Oh, oh, we're back. We're back. Okay. <laughs> you had just yeah, my... right at the end, right when you were okay. there, there was a picture of you going over the bars, uh, <laughs> almost going over the bars. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I just, I just thought it was, it was so funny. Like that those, yeah, like you said, the ugly races could turn out to be good. And, and when you mention the closeness of, um, of the races, when you first start racing, um, I feel like there is that temptation 
to think about it only in a negative context. Like after you cross the line that, oh my God, somebody beat me by like 0.01. Um, <laughs> and, and you kind of think back about, uh, yeah, there was that half a pedal strip oh, that I yeah. missed or like, you know, six inches to the right here. But then I think there's kind of a mindset shift there to where it's like, it really makes you try to do your best like during the run because you know, you know, no matter what you do, you're probably going to like either beat someone or get beaten by like (laughs) (laughs) 0.01. So like, it's kind of all on you at that point where it's like, okay, like as I'm in my run, um, I know that, uh, like this matters, like every single thing that I do matters and that it has to be, uh, you know, I'm going to try to do it perfect. And I think for me, it was kind of another motivator when I was doing my training, like you talked about doing intervals. It was like, okay, how do I, like this one interval could actually make the difference between, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 15th and a whatever. Um, and I think that that was kind of important for me to keep in mind. And the, <laughs> The thing that's super frustrating about sport is that you can't make anything up. Like if I, if you miss training or something, take a day off. It's not like you can train twice as hard the next day. Like it doesn't work like that. (laughs) Like I did a 20 mile ride today. So I'm going to do a 40 mile ride like the next day. So it it really, um, I, I think it was just like a good reminder where it's like, okay, like everything matters. Um, and if I'm trying to do this, you know, at a high level, like I need to make sure that I'm like putting, you know, my best in at all points, like training and during the race. Mm-hmm. And that connects back to what you were saying earlier about confidence. When you know that you've done all of your preparation, you've been consistent, you know, with everything going into the actual race day, like that, that's, that that's what's the, that's the thing that's building your confidence going into competition. Totally. So I want to take some time to talk about grow cycling foundation, because that's, uh, that's uh, these days, that's your main focus, right? In the sense that you aren't racing the, you aren't on the team USA world champs team right now in Leo gang, like you used to be, which is just so freaking cool, by the way, congratulations <laughs> on being selected for team USA. That's just so cool. So, um, but these days, uh, it's grow cycling foundation is what you're focusing on. So, uh, to set the scene w- with all of this too, like, and we've mentioned this before in the podcast, we felt like with, with, the uh, the exposure that all of us have had to racial injustice and, and the connected dissatisfaction that we've seen throughout the world as a result of this whole thing, we've felt like, man, like what can we do to make this sport a more inclusive, more welcoming place? Like, and everybody that's listening to this right now, I think everybody agrees that, especially if you jumped into the road world, like you probably had some experiences <laughs> where that, that world wasn't very inclusive. And there yeah. were probably some, some dentists on Pinarellos or whatever else that probably told you to get out of here when you tried to join that group for the first time. Who knows? Come on, know? don't pick on the dentist. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, dentist. <laughs> <laughs> we love you. Um, uh, but the point is, uh, this is something that's obviously like dealing with something that's a very different scale, right? In the sense of, of race, the racial inequity that exists in our, in our, in our sport and in our world. So I, I don't feel like I can like make a massive difference in the world personally, but I can totally change my own individual actions in trainer road. We don't feel like we can change the world massively, but maybe we can make some sort of an effort. And I bet that all of us listening to this can learn from this, from this process and, and do like have a real impact on it. So 
uh, here's the thing. Like there have been a lot of talks about different things that people want to do. We can clearly see that there are problems, all of these things, but, but you're one of the few examples I, uh, that we've seen and, and, and not picking on anybody else. I just think it's really exciting that we have an example of this, of somebody that's doing something, uh, that that's putting together an organization to be able to do it. So first of all, can you explain really quick why you started grow? Because you're also a, a software engineer and you're an entrepreneur and you do a ton of different things, right? So, so why did you start grow? Yeah, no, thank you so much. I, I think for me, you know, we've been, we've been talking about racing and, and I think it kind of shows how much mental energy that takes up. So it's not to say that, you know, I wasn't, didn't experience anything, um, or didn't feel anything, but I always thought that when I'm racing, I'm racing. Um, and the clock doesn't know what I'm feeling in my personal life or, um, anything like that. There's not really either I'm going to race and I'm going to do my best and I'm going to try as hard as I can. And for me, I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. You know, once I'm on the giant factory off-road team and racing, like I have more advantages than 99.9% of people. Um, so my, me not winning a world championship or not winning a roar cup overall or anything like that is, is not, um, you know, I, I always feel like it's really important for us to not lower the bar. Um, and, and it's more about the development. How does somebody get to the place that I've been? Um, and like thinking back about, you know, my career, I, I think, and I'm apologize if I'm missing someone, but, um, I think I was probably the only black person to start at the world cup, um, throughout my whole 10 year career. And, and it's not to say, I, I think there's kind of a lot of, a lot of reasons for that. Um, but for me personally, you know, when the George Floyd stuff happened, it was kind of a good time for me to reconcile internally. You know, how did I feel about this stuff? Um, how did I, what are some of the, you know, the biases that I felt that maybe I've squashed? Um, can I, what can I do? that makes sense for me. And Katie Holden, my co-founder kind of came to me with the idea of, um, of doing something. And, and it was really cool because like we, we have these, this, we have a decent amount of companies involved now, but there's like these founding partners of like Yeti, Santa Cruz, Fox, Pinkbike, um, and Red Bull where, you know, it was like the CEO of these companies, like reaching out to me. Um, and, and I realized that, um, I do have like a lot of access. I do have a lot of things, um, and advantages that I can use to help people get to a place where I was. Um, and you know, there's kind of like a lot of, um, there's like a lot of talk about like, you know, if only bikes were cheaper, then we would be able to get more people into it. And you know, I always say like, if it was, if it was only that, then we would see a lot of black dentists. Bikes. <laughs> um, but we don't see, we don't see that either. And so it's kind of like, what is it around the culture? What is it around? Like your point around like showing up to a group ride, I think is so important because um, it's not just about, um, you know, how does somebody feel when they first get into the sport? You know, when I walk into a bike shop, whatever color I am, and I think we've all had those experiences where 
it might not be the most accepting place, you know, showing up to a group ride um, might not be the, the most fun thing. So you kind of have this um, thing, like the question, if you flip it on its head is like, why would somebody want to be in the space in the first place? Um, because if you go to a community of color, like you see kids riding bikes all the time, like riding BMX bikes, like you could buy a BMX bike for three, 400 bucks. And, and it is very prevalent because it is transportation and it is freedom. And so how do we then kind of educate people in that space to say like a bicycle is more than just like a vehicle. It's like, it's, it's transportation, like physically and metaphorically where it can take you around the world. It can, you know, let me be talking to you guys on this podcast. Um, and from the other side, like the people in the cycling community, it's about saying, you know, there are more um, ways to ride a bike. Like the kid in Baltimore doing wheelies is just as much of a cyclist as I am starting on the world championship starting line. Um, so I think like what we're focused on is really trying to create a community um, and then create paths where if you want to just ride around the block, you can do that. Um, we, our first initiative is a pump track in Los Angeles. So there's like a really distinct lack of access there. And to bring kind of the, the city to outdoors, I think you first have to bring the outdoors to the city. Mm. And so it's like building this hub and then saying like communicating with these companies to say like, what does it look like for you guys to hire talent? Um, what does it look like for us to develop talent? What does it look like for us to host a pump track world championship so the pump track so the people can um, be a pro athlete uh, and see that, you know, and like not so much import a cycling culture into a place, but like let them create their own where, you know, you have like a local barbecue there, music. Um, so it's actually the culture of the people that you're trying to get into the sport. So I, I think for me, the impetus is you know, like very long-winded. No, <laughs> but, this is great. It's, but it's, but I think for me, it's, it's about saying like my path um, into the cycling world was like so serendipitous. Like when I was growing up in Oklahoma, I would have never, I, I rode bikes all the time in the backyard and like built jumps and stuff. But like, I had no idea what road biking was, mountain biking. And it just so happened that I moved to California and it just so happened that a mountain biker came down to our dirt jumps and convinced me to go up to Whistler. Um, and so there's like all of these things that kind of had to line up just for me to have the opportunity to, to know what mountain biking was um, to do that, to, you know, like we, you know, my parents, like being able to actually support me and, you know, they came from like nothing and, and, you know, built, built something that allowed me to, um, to actually pursue a dream. So it's, it's kind of like, when you look back, it's like, that was very much an outlier <laughs> and uh how can we how can we make it a little bit less of an outlier so they can mm -hmm. be like more elliot jackson's and more people who want to experience um this this kind of thing that we all love doing one thing i want to add to this um is when you talked about the the main the first project that you're working on that Velo and Velo solutions is the pump track uh designer and construction company in this case 
They built the greatest pump tracks in the world. They're asphalted <laughs> pump tracks that are long lasting and durable. And like, you know, it's, and so it can serve as actually like a staple of a community and it's $40 yeah. a square foot is the cost that, that, that you would have. And, and if you're listening to this right now, we'll have links below and links in the podcast description, everything else for all of you to go and donate to this. Cause you can either do, you can do like a recurring donation. You can do a one-time donation. You can, you can basically like build a foot, a square foot of that pump track, <laughs> which is really cool for 40 bucks. There's, or you can donate less than that. Like every penny helps. And I think that this is really cool because so like, uh, you know, we've, we've made donations as a company to different organizations and everything else, but w part of us too, are like, well, we want to really make donations that that help within cycling, because that's where we really have this like realm of influence. And it's hard sometimes because you, it's like tangential at best, but this is so direct. Mm -hmm. So this is like a really cool opportunity for us, uh, for all of us listening to this. So I really encourage everybody to, to, to go check it out. Um, you did such a good job of outlining so many things. I feel like, uh, I, I'm, I'm running through the rest of the questions and you covered so much, but one of the things I want to co cover here is just a quote from the website. It says, to sustainably grow our industry, we must first build authentic foundations of diversity from within that don't employ superficial or exploitate or exploitive solutions. And that to me, when I read that, I'm like, Ooh, that's like a, something goes off. And I'm like, that sounds like that's where I get involved as an individual, wherever I am. Like, I don't have to mm -hmm. be in Los Angeles where the pump tracks being built. I can probably do something elsewhere. So, so what can, from your perspective, like what are actionable things that all of us can do? to help. Yeah, totally. I think, um, talking about kind of what, what we had outlined before of, of like that empathy. Um, I don't think that, I think this is, we were actually talking about this before the podcast. I think for us, we're thinking about this, like on a, on a decade scale, you know, we're thinking about, and I think for individuals, it is about saying, what can I do that I can sustain for a long time? And so, you know, it's amazing uh, if you can donate, but it's totally not required, right? Like the thing I think about the most and like my biggest call to action is um, being more open to new ideas and to new people where if somebody shows up at a group ride, like maybe don't make fun of their socks or that they have <laughs> last year's bike or that their tires are bald um, or, you know, I, I think that there is, there is just a culture, um, around kind of, yeah, like this is bikes, you know, keep, keep the, keep these things separate. You know, if somebody wants to ride a bike, they'll ride a bike or, you know, maybe like, I've heard that so much, like, oh, black people just don't like riding bikes. Um, <laughs> uh, which is funny. Ridiculous. Um, but, <laughs> but I think it's, it's about if you don't think about it, like, you know, that you're doing something wrong. Like we think about this as a really positive thing. Like we want more people to be on bikes. Um, we want more people to be able to experience the stuff that we all love. And I think the biggest way that that happens is if all of us on an individual level um, kind of just make that possible because like, everyone that's listening to this and everyone in the cycling world is the cycling world. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, if it's, if it's just like, yeah, helping somebody out, um, you know, no matter, no matter what color they are, um, or, or gender or sexual orientation, like just being 
good people um, and being accepting, being inviting, I think goes, goes a super long way. And um, the other thing too, is like allowing people to make mistakes where, you know, I think everyone's kind of learning in this time. Um, and so if somebody says the wrong thing or does the wrong thing, it's like, just, you know, we were just talking about how many mistakes we make on the bike and <laughs> how, <laughs> yeah. how, how to improve. And so I think that it shows that that's how improvement gets made. And, um, and we have to be able to improve personally as well in the same way where it's like, yeah, like, People are learning, um, people are experimenting and, and letting people do that and in an empathetic way. So if somebody does something wrong, it's like, yeah, like we're quite on the ball, but um, here's, <laughs> here's, here's what I thought about it. And like, we can go forward. And I think it's like just thinking about it as any other friendship that you would kind of have with, with anyone. So I think for me, those two things are like the biggest call to action. Um, and it's like, we'll make the biggest change. Um, in the in the cycling world yeah sometimes it's just really small things that can make people feel welcome in a new space um i i, I know i've totally different experience and for different reasons but you know as a woman jumping into a group ride like doesn't always feel very welcoming and <laughs> like you i you know i didn't know anything about cycling and it was a serendipitous series of events that led to this career and at every kind of point along the way there was somebody there extending an open hand you know yeah and and welcoming me into the next step the next phase of that career um and i just i on the website you do mention intersectionality in cycling and i just wanted to take a moment uh, do you mind sharing what that means and how grow incorporates that into into the work that you're doing yeah totally i i think that um for us means that you know one group of people making progress means that we can all make progress. And, you know, a lot of the, the barriers that are here for, you know, people of color are also here for women are also here for different sexual orientations are also here for people with different backgrounds, um, or, um, different income levels. And so if we can help create more paths, um, it also, um, helps bring everyone up at the same time. Mm. Yeah, this is something sense. where I think of like an actionable thing that I can do. And I find that subconsciously one of the, like the, it's like a bias and, and it, but it's definitely something that I create that's unnecessary is I think of people as a cyclist or not as a cyclist. Like <laughs> I'm just thinking of it last night. Like, so, so we, we just moved into a neighborhood and there's people moving into this new neighborhood all the time. Right. So we're getting to meet all these people. And when I see them, I, I don't think of them as like, I think of them as like, uh, like the, the guy, the guy I just met last night, I don't think of him as a cyclist when I saw him, right. it doesn't look like a cyclist. <laughs> so I'm like, instantly I'm like, I'm like putting him in a box. Right. And like, right. why am I doing that? Um, I don't, and, and maybe instead, like, what if I was just like, Hey, you know, it'd be really cool. Like I like riding bikes. And what if I just shared what I liked with this person mm -hmm. in a, in just a friendly, normal way? Like, totally, like totally. instead of saying like, you look like a cyclist, I should get you on a bike or you don't look like a cyclist. Right. We totally shouldn't. Like it's a small thing, but that's one of the things yeah. that I'm taking away from this conversation that I can do better at least. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think that, um, we, we do, um, have, 
an idea of, of, of like what are, what we look like, what everyone else looks like um, and allowing, like being able to take in new information, you know, where there, especially now where there's so many new people getting into bikes um, and all different kinds of bikes, bloody saw an elliptical bike the other day. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, all over the place. <laughs> and I think it's like, it's, it, it, there is a, um, there is a defensiveness that's, that's kind of easy for it to happen where it's like, ah, like that's not really the way I ride. That's mm-hmm. not really the way that I want to ride. Um, and I think just like allowing people to do their thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, even if you don't want to interact with like all these people, it's like, you know, there's no reason to, uh, to like, you know, tell them that they can't do what they want to do. Um, because they're kind of riding a bike in a different way than you kind of thing. So it's like, yeah, like keep, keep doing what you're doing. Um, but also like be, be open to like new ideas and and stuff like that. Yeah. Extending that hand in so many cases, there's a a pro cyclocross rider up, uh, North of us here in Massachusetts. And he was out just doing a training ride during his pro career. So clearly strong dude. And some, random guy, I think in jean shorts and a flannel, like locked onto his wheel (laughs) and was hanging with him when he was doing like 500 watt efforts. (laughs) And he's like, and instead of getting annoyed and thinking like, this guy's not a cyclist to your point, Jonathan, he, he took the time to get to know this kid and got him onto a development team, got him connected, you know, with bikes and sponsors. And the kid ended up having a really phenomenal pro career. Wow. Right. That's it, crazy. And it's, it's yeah. those small moments where it's like some, it, it can be just a small thing is like introducing yourself. Like, yeah, it's not totally. hard, but it could just mean the world to somebody who's showing up, especially on a group ride when they don't know anybody. And yeah, there's, I, I think most of us probably have a story of somebody either doing that for us or somebody for whom we did that, who ended up really surprising us, you know, and not being what we expected. And, and it doesn't take much, but even our, the smallest acts like that can make, have such a profound impact for other people so much more so than we probably give credit for. Yeah. Yeah. Like I totally agree with that. I've had so many, like throughout my career, so many people that have helped given me parts, done all these things that let me not only feel like accepted and like I belonged in like the racing space, but like actually, you know, continued, like built the path for me yeah. where like, I, you know, it didn't stop um, because if like they wouldn't have done those things, like maybe I wouldn't have been able to continue my career or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and think about how much confidence plays a role in success and performance. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately too, a sense of belonging makes such a difference in making you feel confident and empowered in your own self-efficacy as an athlete. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. and I actually just read, it was, it was a, I think it was a letter in, in science, which is one of the publications that we, we read a lot around here, but but they cited a study that said that, um, people from underrepresented groups disproportionately experience imposter syndrome, which makes Mm -hmm. total sense. Right. Because you don't feel like you belong so much more frequently than you do feel like you belong when you're operating or or living in or working in these spaces where you don't see other people like you. And it doesn't necessarily have to, if we can increase representation, 
that will be awesome. But in the meantime, while we're getting that, that momentum going, just to have the people around you who may not look like you, who may, you know, be different from you, reach out and to your point, offer help, offer whatever those, just the smallest things can make you feel like, Oh, I do belong here. And yeah, man, what a world of difference. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. That's, it's so funny you touched on that because I, um, I wrote a little piece, uh, for outside a while ago. And that was one of the stories I told where, uh, the, I've had like, had somebody say like, Oh, do you think that you would be on giant if you weren't black? Kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, is it like a quota thing? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think for me, it's like having, having to have that like really, like unshakable confidence to say like, no, like I do belong here. And I, um, I know what I've accomplished and I know what I can accomplish. But like in those moments where you don't have that confidence, it's like, I don't know, do I belong? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? And it, and like, because we all can relate to that feeling of like imposter syndrome where it's, um, you know, once we get somewhere, like getting a good job, um, being somewhere, like being, having, awesome things or and a good life outcome. It's like, how did this happen? <laughs> like, am I supposed to be doing this? Um, Making so the world yeah, championship I team. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely can relate. Chances are like all the success that we all have, if we're really honest when, and some things we'll never be able to see because there are hidden hands that help us all the time. But mm. if we really look at it, we're, we're the product of so many other people's generosity or, or hard, uh, you know, hard work or efforts or something else. Like, we're all in, uh, we're all the, anybody that if you ever feel at any point, any sort of privilege in your life, I'm sure you've looked back and recognized, yeah, that was because of great help from this sort of person. So it's cool because all of us, no matter what situation we're in, we have the opportunity to be that source of help to somebody. Um, I, I wanted to share one comment that came up in my, in my mind there, Amber, when you were talking about, uh, a sense of belonging, how many athletes have we heard? So an athlete that like reaches their pinnacle because they chose to believe that they really did belong there at that point. And Mm -hmm. this is like, I was almost emotional after watching, I know this is super weird, but after watching cross country world cup racing this weekend, because Henrik Avancini won. And so, and, and this is why this is big. He's from Brazil and, and let's be fully honest and, and transparent here. People view South America largely as a second rate place. And, and the world does, whether it's the, and it's, it's, it's the Northern hemisphere primarily, you know, it's Europe and America and North America. They view South America as, oh yeah, second place. Like they might be able to get onto our level and that's where they're seen. And, and I, from living there for two years and from having many friends in South America, they feel that way as well. And that frustrates so many of them because the fact is they aren't second place. (laughs) And, and like, I was just like, wow, this is so much bigger and, and, Henrik, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the win is huge to you, but it's so much <laughs> bigger than that. Like yeah. his win transcended so much because what that showed to, to me was the fact that like, Hey, like he didn't have the same access that, that somebody from Switzerland has when they grow up in mountain biking. Like everyone's basically an Olympic mountain biker in Switzerland. It seems like when they grow up. Right. So like he didn't have that level of access and I love a post that he made where he was like, 
in 2013 and he walked you through every year. He was like, I finally made it to a world cup. I finally got a top 30. I finally got a top 15. I finally got a top 10, then a top five, then a podium. Then I finally, you know, it like, he like showed yeah, it's been years totally. and it was just, yeah. it was really cool because symbolically what it meant for me was the fact that like, look, like, uh, this athlete is, 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 is overcoming so much to be able to do yeah. that. And chances are there are people around us that are not in similar circumstances, but perhaps different ones that we can help. And maybe they're going to have their own little mini world cup win, whatever that is. And that might just mm -hmm. be going to the group ride and feeling comfortable, feeling like, yeah. like, instead of like uncomfortable and hanging off the back, cause you're afraid to screw them up. Like you're actually enjoying the ride and being up with somebody and it's all up to us. It's up to us to be able to make it feel more comfortable like that. So I just, I just personally want to thank you for taking these actionable steps to make this organization, to educate us, make us think about it. And then also of course, affect change as an organization too. It's just super cool. Um, <laughs> thank you. I'm, I'm going to support better for all of us. Yeah. It's awesome. Everybody. Yeah. Thank you guys. I'm going to, I'm going to go and donate after this. And I encourage genuinely encourage everybody to do that, but also find an actionable takeaway that you can do. Like I'm not going to put people in a box. Instead, I'm going to think of everybody as a potential rider and maybe I can help them enjoy it. Um, so find that ac actionable takeaway from what we just listened to and then check out grow cycling foundation. The links are below. And it's a fantastic way where we can have direct impact in the sport that we all love. So Elliot, this has been awesome. I can't, it's already been two hours. Um, so <laughs> sorry for taking more time. <laughs> I think that, no worries. I think that we should totally have you back on at some point. Cause it'd be really fun to have you on with Nate, our CEO and everything else. He's Nate's, um, a great example of, of being humble and hungry. He's always inquisitive and trying to learn and, and seeking improvement. And I feel like it'd be just an awesome podcast. So we'll have to have you on again. Uh, what can, how can people get in touch with you if, um, if they want to talk to you or grow or anything else? Totally. Um, yeah, like heading to the website, um, you can follow us on Instagram, uh, Gross cycling foundation. And, um, my Instagram is Elliot Jackson. I like am terrible at social media. So, <laughs> um, I, yeah, no, going there a whole lot, but <laughs> awesome. But yeah, totally. Thank you, man. I, I genuinely appreciate it. Uh, this has been an awesome podcast episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you're curious about what we do here at trainer road, just go to trainerroad.com. It's that simple. Uh, it'll make you faster. So with all that said, <laughs> thanks everybody. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks Thank you, so Elliot. Much. <laughs> no worries.